Thank you so much for tuning in to She's All Over the Place with Kitty Aki. That's me. Welcome back to She's All Over the Place. Today we have Douglas Weissman. He writes stories of friendship, of finding beauty in the grotesque, and finding magic in the mundane. Stories about building bridges, about burning bridges, about growing trees, about turning trees into bridges, and the way strangers find common ground, which is particularly very important to me. So I'm excited to dive into this conversation. Douglas has published eight novels, the latest of which is Life Between Seconds, which was released in November of 2022. I'll have the link in the show notes so you can learn more in addition to all of Douglas's social media, his website. Douglas is a graduate and has a master's of fine arts in creative writing at the University of San Francisco, and he lives in Los Angeles. Douglas, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. And I just have to say, it's so different to hear you live because I listen to everything on two times speed. So it's, this is a lot more uh, understandable than the way I usually hear things. <laughs> yeah, I'll go, um, I probably sound like a chickmunk. Normally, I sound like a chickmunk on a double speed. I'm probably like, I, I'll have to check out my voice on on double speed. Huh? <laughs> Interesting. Cool. Well, I mean, let, we have so much to talk about. So let's just dive in. You love traveling the world. I've traveled the world. We're travelers, you know, wisdom seekers. Uh, where uh, were you born and how did you pivot into writing out of all things and why? I feel like I'm one of those rare people who was born and raised in Los Angeles and then stayed in Los Angeles, or at least that's the way people who weren't born in Los Angeles talk about it to me. Uh, I was born in the San Fernando Valley, so it's a suburb. Growing up, it was orange trees. It was beautiful. I actually grew up across from undeveloped landscape, and there was rattlesnakes and quails and roadrunners, and it was amazing until I was about eight years old, and then houses everywhere. Uh, and it just kind of shaped my perception, both of being close to a city and culture, but being outside of that space. And just the storytelling that came from that margin, right, that outside of the norm and outside of being in the thicket of things. And then I have a very large Jewish family who was always telling stories, the stories of escaping Russia during the pogroms, stories of friends and family escaping Germany during the Holocaust, stories of just random meetings of people that I really latched onto. And that started shaping my perspective and my perception of why community is important, why meeting new people is exceptional, and why stories from outside of my own perspective are kind of magical. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. How neat. So let's chime into your writing journey. So for me, Mrs. Dimbicki was my English teacher. And just it seemed like growing up, the English teachers were really fond of me and enjoyed my writing. Was that the same for you and your influences growing up? Who supported you in your writing journey? That's such a great question. It starts with Mrs. Stage or Miss Stage in uh, second grade. And it's not that she necessarily thought I was a great writer. It's just that I wrote with a friend this silly story about the unhappily ever after of Cinderella, right? That rebellious eight or nine-year-old trying to be like, no, it's it's all silly. And Cinderella meets with a rabbit pack of dogs just to be contrarian in some way. Uh, but she thought it was so funny that she had us read it to the class. And that was kind of that first encouragement that I can make stories and that it's fun and exciting. And then 
when I got to high school, I was bored most of the time in many of my classes. And I read this book on kind of how to stay engaged when you're bored. And a lot of it had to do with just do silly things that to see how far you can go, but not in a disruptive way. So part of it was, well, how can I write this essay in such a ridiculous fashion, like taking it over the top and still get a good grade on it. So I wrote an essay on where's Waldo and how Waldo was scared and alone, needing to be found. And the sense of relief and joy he feels once he's discovered and just these ridiculous things. And I wouldn't say that I was encouraged to do these things, but I wasn't discouraged. So by the time I got to university and I was in college and I met one of my writing instructors who I consider a mentor, he was the first one that made me feel like my stories could go somewhere and that my voice was developing and I had interesting things to say. Because let me tell you, so many stories I wrote were awful with nothing interesting to say and were the the generic and even cliched college essays of truth and finding beauty and nobody understands me, but in that really superficial way. Uh, and it was him who, Martin Poussin from Cal State University Northridge, and he still teaches there. He really found something like a nugget in there that I was able to develop that I then further explored through travel and understood, oh, this is what inspires me. And this is where the story I want to tell is really found. Yeah, I want to dive deeper um, before into that. And before I do, I just want to say it's so funny because Andrew Lloyd Webber did Bad Cinderella on Broadway. And so everything that you said your teacher told you Mrs. Stages, he did now in 2023. Isn't that hilarious? I obviously inspired it. Second grade me inspired Andrew Lloyd Webber. No. <laughs> so it's done now, but uh, it was a limited run. But uh, you could go to Spotify everywhere. I've listened to the soundtrack four times the soundtrack to the musical. So, uh, you know, you'll listen to the writing and the music. I highly suggest it. It's quite entertaining. I have to. I come from a very theatrical family. Like I said, we're big, we're boisterous. My brother did acting on stage for a long time, for like six or eight years. And so growing up, my family always, every soundtrack, every musical we could see, we were lucky enough to go to New York to see Wicked before it had moved to Los Angeles. We saw Avenue Q there before it toured, all these things. So we're, I'm big in the soundtracks. And now my daughter, who's three, is big in the soundtracks. She actually asked to listen to uh, Anastasia, the Broadway performance. She asked to listen to these random soundtracks that I have no idea where she's getting it from. And I'm excited to share it with her. Sweet, sweet. That's so neat. How cute. Yeah, I'm really big into soundtracks too, like ever yeah. since I was a kid. I love the theater. I just had Eric Jensen on, actually. He was uh, the lead in the collaboration, um, a story of an art dealer with Basquiat and Angie Warhol in their famous collaboration. So Broadway is a big part of my life life as well. I love being big and, you know, loud. I'm Greek. So yep. the diving more into the nugget that you mentioned, how do you discover with all the writing people may scribble? I, I'm a poet. I'm a writer myself. But how do you decide I haven't much to take this like, oh, this could be a movie. This could be a story to tell for a novel. Uh, how with your experience, um, have you made the choice that this is a nugget and to take it to the next level, how much time to spend on it? Is it rapid fire flow? Tell me about your journey and your process, please. Definitely. My journey and process is so unhelpful to other people because it's just that representation of what I do and it works for some, it doesn't work for others. I spent so long trying to copy what I heard other writers do and it just didn't work for me, but through it, I was able to find what did work for me. So if that's helpful and I I'm happy to share with people what I do and how it works. 
then they can try it and see if it works for them. And to be clear, it also changed over time. Like the way that I wrote 10 years ago is very different from the way that I write today in terms of how much time I have, how much capacity I have, and how I get things done. But when I started writing and I was learning these nuggets, I had this instructor and it just all clicked. And he said, all great writers have an obsession. And they always write to that obsession. The story changes, but the obsession is always there. And it's when they deviate from that obsession that they don't write their best. And you see it time and time again. This was Those were his words. And I agreed to a point. And I realized my obsession is connection, is travel, is kind of found family, and is trauma. And it's when these things coalesce and come together that I find the story really takes hold. And it's really broad. I know these are really broad themes, but the stories can be very different from six stories about a group of orphans in San Diego who hijack a an ocean liner when the world is frozen over due to climate change and end up on a deserted island, which were the first six books I wrote, to new adult college student who basically is having trouble making connections uh, and finding purpose as you know, a 20 something adult in a new world to life between seconds, which deals with a 74 year old Argentinian woman who lost her child during the dirty war and a 22 year old young man in San Francisco who lost his mother to suicide. And it's like, where does the trauma come in? How do the travel experience that they've had shape them? Where did their friendship come in to help them overcome their past experiences? And why? Why does it matter? Like, those are the things that I explore. And it's because of an understanding of exploring what things matter to me, exploring what things interest me, that I'm able to expand on those themes. Where if I, if someone said, write a story, you know, write a 300 page story on ice cream, it's not going to work for me. Like I love ice cream, but it's not interesting enough for me. But if somebody says, oh, here's this piece on people in Cambodia who were affected by Vietnam and landmines. Somehow I'm going to find that that interesting piece in there. I wrote a short story on it during undergrad because of the way that it affected me and that type of story that goes also unnoticed, overlooked. So many people don't realize kind of the secret war that went on in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War and the way it's expanded to Cambodia or the way it expanded to Laos and then the way that that affected Cambodia's own political turmoil in the 70s. So it's a different story. But but it just, you know, it, but I'm showing it builds, it builds and it grows until it's something so just I'm incapable of holding it in and I have to share it. And how do you do that? Do you write it out? Do you type it out? Do you have a pad, journal? Do you have a dedicated uh, template just for writing this idea about this subject? Uh, how is the process when you're actually putting it to paper or electronic? Right. I I still like to use the term putting it to paper, even if it's not paper, but I do have a journal where I write notes down. I'm not one of those people who put notes on my phone all the time. I'm also not one of those people who carries around a journal for noting things down all the time. I am one of those people that hopes if an idea is good enough, I'll remember it. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But my writing journey really comes down to, I'm what they call a pantser, right? I will just sit in front of my computer and write everything out explore as fast as I can, as dirty as I can. And then I'll go back and see how it works and see, is there something here? Is there something to explore further? A lot of the times, no. A lot of the times, oh, there's a nugget here that I can take. Again, 10 years ago, when I was in grad school and just out of grad school, I could sit in a cafe for five hours and create 
you know, 8,000 words or something and be like, yes, there's something here. I can use all of this where then the pandemic hit and I'm working X amount of jobs and I'm just freelancing here and there because like so many people, I was laid off. Nobody wants a travel writer when you can't travel anywhere. And I didn't have the mental capacity to do much more than 10 minutes. And so I was writing 10 minutes a night after my daughter went to bed before me and my wife kind of decompressed and hung out. So 10 minutes a night, six nights a week. And I completed an entire novel that way that's going to come out next year. So you can switch, you can change, you can just find the things that work for you. And then when you're exploring, you're exploring what comes up for you to release out of your vessel. Are you exploring the truth? Are you researching the truth? And with social media, because sometimes when you're sitting to write, people make a choice like, okay, no electronics, I'm just going to write so I'm not distracted. But then sometimes you may have to do some research. So then you're utilizing the social media tool to find out factual information that integrates with the writing. There's different steps to it. And then also, are you exploring your imagination of what could be true? And then the what if standpoint. So when you're exploring, share more of your process of exploring in, in those realms that I shared. Yeah, I do research first. And then I kind of cut myself off after a certain time, because I know that research is endless, I could sit there on a subject and just keep going and going and going. And I'll put all the things that I think are important into a document. And sometimes I go back to it. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I have three documents that say the same thing, because I just go back and do extra notes and extra things. But I mean, for instance, it's important to know that in the 19th century in Japan, somebody won't be somebody won't have a zipper right on their pants or something like that. It's this little detail, but it can slip you up. And it's just little things like that, that you can research endlessly, but you also don't want to get trapped in the analysis paralysis. But when I finally sit down to write, I try to ignore all the social media I am away from. I'm not a big social media user uh, I already. Like I go on maybe a couple times a day and I try to keep it at that because I know how easily I can get sucked in with no intention. I try to be intentional about when and why I'm on. And so I'll research internet is not necessarily any better, obviously, but at least then I, I have that intention. I'm on, I'm searching for this, an answer to this question. And I'm really mostly just exploring the world I'm creating in my head. Who is the character? What are they going to do in this situation? What are they going to do in this setting? And how is that different than what another person would do? Because I'm trying to demonstrate the value and individuality of this person that I've made up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I love this. And and while you were speaking, I was I was thinking, oh, since he does his research before, and then you make the commitment, okay, I'm done doing the online research. I'm just going to write. On the right, you can have a sticky pad and note to dot and reference that when you do the research part to look up those finite details that are important. So you're not, cause it gets frustrating when you're in the flow and then having to stop back and forth. So, you know, that's a, that's a really something that just came up. So you could always go yeah. back to a research phase of it. And then with everything you're sharing uh, and the reason why I ask is because, you know, ADHD is really high nowadays. The numbers are going up. It's, you know, really great. All the new companies and resources people have, um, you know, so it's it's a very frustrating thing, whether someone identifies as it and or not knowing it and how to protect their creativity flow, their spirit, their being, their mind, their emotions, because then people get frustrated and just shut down and then stop right. and quit. 
and don't go the extra distance. So I ask these questions, you know, for um, someone who's accomplished, you know, and what your workflow is, because maybe it could benefit and help others when listening. And I know, you know, from what you shared with me, mental health is really important, mental wellness. And so we'd just like to hear from you on the transition, how it correlates with your writing and your personal everyday life for mental wellness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things writing is both something that has, I think, saved me, but also affected me. It's a weird double-edged sword because writing is incredibly isolating. It is incredibly draining. And at the same time, like so many people and so many things, you sit there and compare yourself, right? Like how come I don't have this larger contract? I am an indie author, not so much as independently published, not self-published, but indie as in small publishing houses. And I don't have an agent. So I'm constantly finding ways to pursue publication outside of the norm, which is exhausting, but invigorating at the same time. Like, how can I get through these gates that so many people find to be the barrier and they never push through? And I'm, well, I've done eight books, soon to be nine. So I'm obviously finding ways, even if I'm not reaching that quote unquote success, right? That idea of million copies sold, name brand on every bookstore. No. Will I get there eventually? Sure. I'd love to. But at the same time, I'm making better headway. But it's, again, isolating. It, again, makes me feel comparably lesser than. And one of the issues I've constantly had since I was the age of 13, 12, 13, I was diagnosed with depression. And it's it constantly comes up. And it's difficult when you're already in an isolated space writing. I've been remote, worked remote since 2013. So I don't go to an office since then. I have very little interaction with people throughout the day since then. And I could generally tell how lonely I feel based upon how much of a conversation I'm trying to spark up with the barista, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, I must be really in need of human connection today, which is probably also why human connection is such a deeper part of what I like to write about. But mental health as it stands as a writer, is something that is becoming more uh, prominent in terms of the way people talk about it. It still has a stigma, obviously, across the board, mental health and, and depression or ADHD or anxiety. Like, it's something that we need to share more of. For me, as I say, writing is both an outlet and a cause. <laughs> it's when I fall too far into into that space in which I'm only writing. Then I isolate myself from my wife and from my family, my child, my friends. And I'm in my own little world, but I can't pull myself out. And then everything around me just feels to pull farther and farther away. And at the same time, then I go back to writing because it's a space I feel comfortable. When I don't write, it's the same thing, but in reverse. Because now I'm closer to my family and my friends, but I'm losing that creative outlet that gives me a sense of purpose and a sense of myself. It's right now incredibly difficult because I find writing is an outlet emotionally, not just for depression, but for anger and anxiety. When I see all of this hostility, uh, all this anti-Semitism, all of the, the issues going around, you know, of just uh, people being murdered left and right, whether it's uh, you know, Black, Latino, people of color, uh, part of the LGBTQI community, it brings me back to that space of the stories that I would hear growing up, the spaces of the pogrom, the spaces of the Holocaust. And for me, it all correlates because I understand the banality of evil, because I learned it since I was very young. And so then I want to dive deeper into the safe space of writing. But then I also feel that I'm pulled away from being there for my family and being there as like the source of security and reassurance. So again, it's this balancing act of, all right, how much can I go into this without 
sinking deeper into a depression and despair? And how much can I go into this without uh, feeling that my creativity is not being emoted? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, as a writer, I mean, you just communicated with your words so beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I hear that. I definitely do. Uh, in one regard, I feel, oh, you're so lucky because you do have a wife and you do have children. So it's an anchor. It's an opportunity for you to pull out of that isolation. It's an opportunity for you to only go so far and or healthy communication with a partner to communicate, oh, if it's over seven days or, you know, do a check-in or, you know, know when to pull me out, right? So it's like having those support systems in place are really important. So I think that's really important. When you were a kid, because I have a lot of young kids who listen to the show too. Um, when you were a kid and there's different kinds of depression. So there's high functioning depression, right? So people, for example, like myself, who will stay so busy, so busy to not deal with what's going on inside and creating chaos around just to feel that cortisol hit and that excitement just to keep happy, positive, go lucky, da, da, da. So what kind of uh, depression you were diagnosed young? So um, how was that for you when you were diagnosed with depression? What were your symptoms? You mentioned feeling lonely. Yeah, I was, again, 12 or 13. And it was one of those things that was both lucky, but at the same time, this was 23 years ago. So the stigma was really high. I mean, higher than, granted, it wasn't 50 years ago or it's something you didn't even talk about. But I remember having the conversation with my grandpa because he drove me to therapy one day and he just was trying so hard to get it without understanding it, right? Uh, which actually did make me feel loved and supported because he was trying so hard to understand uh, or having to the connect to, yeah. to, to emotionally connect. So I guess maybe in your writing, that connection is so important because you can, you know, the other side of someone yearning to connect and that neurological connection not happening the way it would soothe you. Right. So I, uh, that just came up for me for you. Oh, ab yeah. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, look, we're having a therapy session right now because it's ah! bringing up that, that connection, that awareness that I would not have otherwise really had. And I mean, again, to your point, it's also a, a, an awareness of why I feel like I want to bring these untold stories or under or overlooked stories to light because I feel like it's one of those areas where having heard the stories of my family and coming from this particular place, it, it's that feeling like if people just knew, right, if people just understood or heard these things, if you could just listen, then you it would change your mind or it would change your perception. And it's not that's not how the world works, but I'm still in that space of that, you know, 10 year old who believes that if I could just show you what I mean, right, if I could just show you what this means to this other person. And that's what writing does. That's what fiction does, especially storytelling, movies, uh, music, right? It sits you in the perspective of the storyteller and, and makes you see from that perspective. And that's why it shows that storytelling fiction gives you empathy. It teaches empathy, right? Even for kids books, like, oh, we're learning from the perspective of this deer who doesn't have any friends because they think she smells, but she doesn't really smell. And then all of a sudden she has friends again. It's like, oh, I shouldn't be so mean to people because it's just like the deer. I should give them a chance or whatever it is, right? Not that that's a story I know, but if somebody wants to write it, go right ahead. But um, so when I would do the therapy and my grandfather sitting there trying to connect or I have to share it with my brother, 
I mean, there was such a stigma on it. And I'm, I'm sitting there both mortified, but at the same time, oh, I, I need to share this. And I would put myself in the same category as you as a high functioning depressive because I do keep myself busy. I always have so many projects. I'm always running around. And the worst thing for me to do is sit still. And the worst thing for me to do is to be, I'm going to say bored. And boredom just meaning the fact that I don't have to uh, dig up my yard or I don't have to write another story and I don't have another travel article to do or I'm not playing with my daughter like something like oh no it's 10 o'clock at night and I and and social media is off and the tv's gone and now I have to sit here on my own what's gonna happen yeah (laughs) and that's the and you're right I mean it's the worst feeling and I know like I try to sit with myself more often because I'm aware of it but to all those young kids out there who do question or have been diagnosed or have it worse you shouldn't be afraid to talk about it and that's if there's one thing if there's one thing that's the main thing you shouldn't be afraid to talk about it because at least when you talk about it people will know and people can support you not necessarily help right because maybe they're not in the right place to help right maybe they're just they're helping or their concept of helping is not what you need but at least you can look at it as well they're trying to support me mm-hmm. yeah um it was just fresh in my mind eric jensen the mm-hmm. actor who was just on the podcast mm-hmm. uh, he was talking about red flags and green flags and he said um if you're uncomfortable in your own creative space like that's something to look at who's around you or to look at within you because we should be comfortable in our own space which means here comfortable within our own body to be okay with how we feel and if it's if we're around people or we're we're feeling we can't communicate we need to find people we can communicate with cuz yeah. we need to be healthy within our own body to be able to live and create. And that's where the start is right, right there, starting, starting there. But as you were speaking, it really came to me that, wow, that is a book right there. Like a man or a woman or someone on the hunt, they're so busy. And then they get the moment alone. And in the book, they keep having this moment alone. And that's the start of the journey of like going within and exploring that connection with self. Oh, that would be like an internal oak tree of a, of a journey. You write the book. It's Again, honestly, yeah, you got my my wheels turning. I mean, just in that same sense of the hero's journey or Dante and the way that like he journeys into you got a journey into hell before you can come out the other side. And it's uh, and that's kind of what what it would be what it would feel like, right? For those people who understand that feeling of having to look in the mirror and face yourself. There's a I'm going to quote a Disney movie, which is probably the worst thing to do at this time, but I love it. And I have a three year old, so I watch them all the time. I'm not ashamed of that. But in uh, Frozen 2, there's a song that the mom sings a lullaby and she says, can you face what the river knows? And uh, it just, I mean, it's one of those things because the the river has memory and it's trying to tell a story, but then it knows what you've done or what your family has done. If you've seen Frozen 2, you get the reference, but can you face what the river knows? And it's the same idea of, can you look in the mirror and sit with yourself, knowing what you've done, knowing what you haven't done, choices you've made or not made, et cetera. Yeah, I I, I, lo- I love that. And and I do voiceover acting, so I'm going to put that on my watch list. Uh, <laughs> but what you just said reminds me in part of your bio of building and burning bridges and that space in between. And that's something for me that I seek all the time, but I've never said it in such a way and being able to communicate with people because I'm very good. I get very in-depth one-on-one with people. But sometimes when it comes to communities that you mentioned earlier, because I'm involved in so many different things, it's like I get these golden, intense moments 
but more of a more of an everyday building, it's really challenging for me. And I just I have to guess it. it's very challenging for a lot of people too, especially introverts or people it takes a lot of energy to, you know, I look at life as a garden and I sow seeds and I nurture those things. So I have friends, I mean, if I go to South Africa, I have someone to meet up with. If I go to Italy, I have someone to meet up with. Mm-hmm. Anywhere I go, like I, I pretty much know someone. And if I don't know, I can call someone that knows someone that is like well connected in that city or country. So I'm blessing those terms on a micro level, which is very detailed. But in regards to like a macro, if it was like a Taylor Swift and her Swifties or, you know, Lady Gaga and her monster, little monsters, or if someone, an artist or someone you see and they have their their fan base, I find it really challenging. Do you, and I feel like you're going to know what I'm talking about based on your bio that you wrote. How do you maintain uh, how do you build bridges? And and let's talk about burning those bridges as well. Yeah, I know exactly how you feel. I am in that same boat, that kind of feeling that you're sowing these small seeds, right? But you want to create like a forest out of a following, not necessarily as big as the Swifties or the Little Monsters, but just as, I'm going to say, quote unquote, entertainer, as an artist, right? You want to reach as large of an audience as possible, to, to spread your message, right? And that's, and that's the big thing, because I want to make sure, I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to be famous for fame's sake. I'm not trying to be famous at all, but I want my stories to reach as many people as possible so they can be affected by those stories. The worst, the worst thing for an artist to, like the worst feeling an artist can conjure is indifference, right? Love me or hate me, but if you are indifferent to me or my work, then it shows that my work is not powerful, that I my message isn't powerful, and that it's not worth giving an emotion. And that, to me, is the worst thing. So when it comes to building bridges, when it comes to burning bridges, I admit, I'm not a bridge burner, right? I don't, I generally don't find reason to burn bridges. If there's an issue with someone, it's not that I fade away, but it's like, I'll just stop why am I going to deal with you if I don't have to? It's not if the confrontation isn't necessary. Confrontation can be necessary, right? Sometimes some people do stupid things and you have to confront them. Other times if I'm like, oh, I've met you a couple of times, you're kind of an a-hole. I just don't need to talk to you. It's fine. <laughs> but with building bridges and burning bridges, it's more about the stories that connect people. It's more about making those deeper relationships because nobody cares about the weather. I mean, we talked about the weather. It's a nice intro into some conversation, right? But really, when you're meeting with somebody and you want to make a connection, you want to build a bridge, when you're just like, ah, oh, the the weather outside, like we talked for five seconds about how Los Angeles is stormy and Detroit is nice and sunny. And it's a great conversation. It's a great introduction to warm up, right? But if we're still talking about the weather 33 minutes later, then it's like, well, what connection are we actually building? But we've made such a bridge together because we've talked about mental health. We've talked about storytelling. We've shared our own experiences with travel and our own experience as artists. And those are the deeper conversations. So I take those stories or I take that understanding and I build a story around that. And I build a story around a person who not only has those feelings or those experiences, but also isn't as removed from burning a bridge. Someone who makes bad decisions, right? We don't want to read a story about someone who's only made perfect decisions because we don't make perfect decisions. We might know what we should say in any given situation. And then we choose not to for whatever reason. We're just so angry. We don't want to be right or we don't want to, we don't want to repair. We just want to be right in those. Right? <laughs> We've all had those arguments where we know exactly what we should say and we know what could diffuse the argument, but we, but we need to be right. We have to be right in that moment for whatever reason. So we say the wrong thing because it feels right 
at the time, or it doesn't even feel right at the time, just because we want to be correct. And it's that a is- false power and it's reactive from the reptilian brain. Reactive. It's it's reactive being hurt and, and also- we, Because we're hurt, we want to hurt. Right? Yes. Yeah. It's a mirror reflection. You're exactly. going to give them what they're giving you. Exactly. and But that's what we want to read about. We don't, we don't, as much as we say we do, we don't want to read stories. We don't want to hear stories that are just one note. Everything's happy. Now, granted, we want happy things to happen generally. We want things to turn out okay. This is why romance novels are so popular, and I love them. Shout out to the bromance book club novels. I'm obsessed with them. They're so much fun. But it, but we want things to go badly and then get repaired at the end. Sometimes, sometimes we don't want things to get repaired at the end. Depends on. Like, I love those deep, depressing books and those deep, depressing movies and those deep, depressing songs that sometimes don't work out at the end, but not always. But that's the point. That's about building bridges. That's about burning bridges. If we don't build, if we don't burn, if we don't see that rupture, we can't repair. If we don't see that rupture, it doesn't feel cathartic when the repair happens. And the repair is really what matters because the repair is where we feel that emotional connection. The the rupture is when we gasp and say, oh my God, is it going to turn out okay? And the repair is when we can take that breath at the end and say, I'm so relieved that this is happy or that they made that connection or that it looks like they're on the right path moving forward. Even if the Mm -hmm. repair is personal as opposed to relational, right? It might not be the, the couple get back together. It could just be, all right, well, now that person understands more about themselves and they can do the right thing moving forward. What you just said just reminded me. I've It's the first time I've looked at it this way. Oh, my gosh. But it, right now, someone who means very dear to me is growing through this thing and she's learning as she grows. And there's supposed to be like a crossroad and then a choice. And then I check in to see how it goes to be there to emotionally support. So she has someone to talk to. Mm-hmm. I let it sit for a day. I didn't hear anything. And I I checked in with her. I love this person. I just checked in like what happened. And she communicated like it didn't happen. The thing that was supposed to, it just didn't happen. And then I gave her different scenarios of what could have happened. And, and then by talking with her, I came up with two other solutions and she came up with some other solutions of what actionable steps she's going to take. So that's the repair mode in the relationship to solve this person's quest. So I'm supporting and emotionally listening, but then shape-shifting in a way to be able to repair, you know, to help her get on her way of where she wants to be. Sometimes that's all we can do, but wow, it, it's wild because you write about it and we're talking about it. And I just... I just saw an example of what I'm doing by action, by choice to really make a, you know, quality choice or a bad choice. But what choices am I making to be there for someone and how am I showing up for them? But then it's like in reflection, how are we showing up for ourselves? Would we want someone to do that for us? Would That's what we would do for others, what they want to do for us, but not having that expectation, but having that precedent and that standards of your character and really embodying and you know as an actor right so it's it's looking at it um from different different angles so thank you for sharing that it's really neat to hear thank you for sharing that i think that's incredibly powerful on both you and and the person that you care for one that they're that they feel trust in you enough to say this is kind of what i need and where I want to go and to check in with you and you being supportive enough to understand that journey and to say, I'll check in with you here and then we can figure out next steps. That's an incredible, empowering relationship. And and it's something that I don't think a lot of people are comfortable necessarily doing to feel like, give me a day, I'll check in with you, like check in with me tomorrow or let's take steps together. 
I need help. I need help. It's like, I need help and no. These are sentences that people have trouble saying, right? No is a complete sentence and I need help is an acceptable sentence. <laughs> I love, I love both of those. Yes. 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 1000%. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those things. Uh, so uh, circling back around, you were mentioning a literary agent. So um, have you thought about and or want your books to turn into movies or a TV show to be optioned? How is that looking for you? I would love them to. When I say that I don't have a literary agent, I, it is not for lack of trying. I spent years querying my book. Uh, I heard this agent the other day, or maybe they were an editor on, on one of the podcasts that I listened to. And they just mentioned that first books are usually so crisp because an author will spend so long revising them. They will spend so long giving it to friends or beta readers. And these people come back with notes. And so the first book is, I think that's why first books are generally so well received when they finally get out into the world. And sophomore books, right? The second book is so often not as polished because they don't take as much time no fault of their own. Usually it has to do with if they have a publishing contract or whatever, uh, whatever the reason may be. And that's kind of how it worked with me where it was like, oh, I got the first book. And then, but while I was working on this first book for years, it took me 11 years from when I first started it to when I actually got it published out into the world. And part of that was writing it. Part of that was revising it. Part of that was querying Part of that was looking for publishers and then the actual publishing process, which took about three years. So I don't want it to sound like the whole thing was just me writing it and then querying, but there's steps. And then the second book took maybe five years from when I first started it to when it's going to come out next year. Yeah. Um, and so these are the reason I say first and second is because these are adult fiction novels as opposed to the first seven novels. The first six were as a YA series. The next one was a young adult standalone book. And so these are two adult fiction books that are also very different than each other. One's kind of magical realism, Life Between Seconds is the one that came out last year. And the next one's a historical thriller that's about a serial killer in World War II Paris. So it's like they're very different from each other, yeah. but at the same time, come back to those same themes of found family, of support, of, of trauma, yeah. and, but explored quite differently. Uh, but when you mention literate agent, when you mention optioning, things like that, definitely into it looking forward to that. But it's also about either looking and finding representation or again, going at it on my own and finding the right people to talk to. And I've made some inroads and I've spoken with people and it's just about nailing down how to move through it properly, uh, especially on my own. Because one of the big things about representation is that they understand the language not just in terms of talking to people, but when it comes to contracts and when it comes to making sure that you kind of get your your space and the things that are important to you moving forward, whether it's creative control, whether it's more money, because uh, like there are some books that I've that I've written that I would say, I don't care about creative control, just give me the money. And there's other books that I would say, no, no, I want more creative control. This means more to me. So give me less money. You know, that kind of- It depends of on the emotional attachment. It's <laughs> exactly what it is. That's it's exactly emotional it is. attachment. So when I first got started uh, in the industry, some people um, in the industry, very successful, they saw my voice, they heard me, blah, blah, blah. And they tried to have me do stand up. And I went and did it. And I was like, wait, I have to memorize these jokes like that. that I thought it was more like stand up. It's like improv and it's all new, fresh material. But it's the same bit over and over. And they wanted to write for me. And I was so emotionally attached to my trauma 
that I didn't allow it to be so. And then two decades later, now I'm on stage and I'm saying certain things because I'm not emotionally attached to those things. I'm like, F it, let's go. You know what I'm saying? So now I can talk about those things. Now, what I want to share, because it came up twice, Tim Chinakis, my brother, he's in LA on Sunset Boulevard in Sunset Plaza. Um, He owns Gold Tree Studios, G-O-L-D, Tree, T-R-E-E, Studios. So look at their Instagram, Gold Tree Studios, and the website, but they're indie like you. Um, they develop movies and TV shows. So you can just write them an email, say you're on my podcast, or I can do an email intro for you. But you can talk to my brother and see if it's a good opportunity for y'all to connect what you have going on, to like take a meeting and see if it could be a good fit for you. Thank you. I would love that. That means so much to me. I appreciate it. And obviously, I'm going to send them the podcast and be like, it's not my fault. It's your sister. Your sister did this. So <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I love my brother so much. And I'm so proud of him and the facility that he's built. I mean, they have a, a 1000 soundproof, uh, 1000 square foot soundstage, oh, a wow. movie theater, eight editing bays for post production, like promos. He, huh? And this is indie. That's what I love about this. It's 1, indie. Square foot sound, and it's indie. Like that's how oh. big the it's the industry is that this is an indie it's massive it's massive it's it's great so you know i mean i don't want to like shill and and give all the information now but just just look him up and you can see who he is and what he does but yeah i mean he's a film producer so and they make they make stuff happen so maybe it could be a good opportunity for he might give you an idea to write a new book who knows maybe you develop something right yeah and the other thing is i've worked in blockchain technology and web3 for since 2018 the coppola family created a film fund for Web3 and democracy and going past the gates and what you were saying earlier about comparison. So like you and the person tuning in, we're not going to do what someone else has already done. Mm -hmm. Any success with a press house or a a writer or a human being, it's done and we're evolving with technology. So it's finding the new crispness of the newness, right? The abundant energy of life to make it happen. So um, they had this huge writer and they had a grant for writers to go and give them funds to write the script or to finishing funds to do their movie all independently with the nonprofit and all through blockchain technology. So it's um, DCP, uh, Decentralized Pictures Foundation. So I, you know, implore you to look at that too as an option. And then when you do it, bring me on as a producer and be like, yo, let's make it happen, Kay. I'll be like, yeah, let's go. But I'll give you the, those are some resources to help you on your journey as an independent because it's all about being sovereign and what was already happening and that comparison and it being so difficult. There's new waves, evolve ways to do things independently, right? And that's what you are. I'm an independent podcaster, producer, you're independent. So when we do things independently and we team up with the new independent ways out there, you know, we can keep on trucking. (laughs) No, that's exactly it. And that's what I like to kind of explain or explore when I'm talking to people about AI, right? It's this great tool. It's not a replacement. And especially working uh, close with uh, startup companies in Silicon Valley for a few years uh, and working directly with a travel startup, you know, I hear developers that actually talk about it in that way, like, oh, use it as this thing to take care of all the things I don't want to do so I can focus on this other thing where you try to get AI to, I mean, we see it with the writer's strike right now in Los Angeles and the issue with what executives think it can do versus what writers know it can do or can't do. And it can regurgitate the same story that's been told because 
that story has been told and that's why it's able to regurgitate it. I'm not knocking Save the Cat at all. It is a great resource, right? Save the Cat writes a book, Save the Cat for screenplays, because it explains what the beats are and how to hit the beats when you're telling a story in certain fashions. But at the same time, the stories that stick with us, the stories that we constantly return to and the stories that inspire us are generally not the stories told in the same way every time. They're the stories that step out from that mold and what you said there, it's been done. And that's why we're doing something different. That's exactly it. Like we hear it all the time where uh, producers or lit agents or these things, and again, not knocking them, but they'll say, I want something new. I want something kind of undefinable. But then when you give them something undefinable, that's still quality, right? Not just gibberish and turn it in, but something undefinable that doesn't fit into the molds that are currently there. And they're like, well, I don't know how to market this because it doesn't fit into the molds. And they're like, so you want something that's just a little different than what's currently out there, right? But that's not what's happening anymore. We are pushing envelopes. We are pushing stories. We are creating brand new concepts that aren't following that limited spectrum of what's been before. And I love the way that you put it. And I love the passion you have about it. And that's really like what Web3 is. And that's where AI is kind of pushing storytellers, right? No longer can you just hit beat one, beat two, beat three. You have to explore the different methods while still allowing people to understand how the story is developing and where it's going. Yeah, two things. One, what you just said and how you explained it leads me to this VC. And he's a VC um, in, in OpenSea, which is like the Christie's of, of Web3 and NFTs. But he, I was with him um, and this agent from CAA who's big into Web3 as, as well as this, um, it was a conference in Santa Monica that I went to. The back and forth of what you just said of not having it be the same, but a little different. And then the a person on the other side being like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. The VC, when they're at the pioneering of the ship and you get to that point of like, well, I don't know because they're unsure. That's when you as a sovereign being, as the writer, as the artist, as the individual need to say, F you, this is it. They want that crazy ballsness that, yes, like, oh yep. my God. And then that's going to excite them to do something new. So you have to go past the barriers of that 1% when you get to that tipping point of that tipping point, you need to be the one to push it through because it's not going to be them. They're going to stay safe with their investments and their family and what they know. They yeah. want that kookiness. They want that craziness. They want to hear it. You know, they, yeah. they do. The other thing is like, uh, I'm an actor and, you know, uh, everyone voted Yes, like like ninety nine percent, the vote came out, and uh, for <clears throat> for the writers to go on strike, and they're negotiating right now. And yes, the writers are on strike, and they gave them a handsome amount of money. It wasn't the money; it was um, they don't want AI at all, and they don't even want AI for ghostwriting. It's like with the contract, instead of a contract being however many years, how about when it's when it's AI technology? They just update the agreements of the new because we're evolving. How about every six months, every year, they can just upgrade that part of it, you know? So I think that would be a really smart thing to do. No, I mean, just what you said, kind of that that idea of the, the VC saying they need that passion, right? Every time you hear an artist, you hear a screenwriter, you hear a novelist, you hear the way that they succeeded is generally the fact that they are their best pitcher. They are their best cheerleader, right? When it comes to those gatekeepers, when it comes to the agents at the door and they're saying, oh, I need to fall in love with your work, it just is in reference to how you were talking about the VC needs that enthusiasm, right? The writer, the creator, the artist, they need to be their biggest cheerleader. They need to demonstrate the enthusiasm for their work because no one's going to care about your work more than you. No one should care about your work more than you. I mean, granted, you want people to care, but if you don't care about your work, nobody else will. Wow. Wow. Oh, that takes a level of dopamine. 
<laughs> you know, it really does. It takes a certain level of dopamine, especially with the depression when people are feeling worthless and blah, blah, blah. It's like it takes you have to have you have to have that self-love and nurture for self and really value your own work and your own creation and and understand your own value from within for others, because you really need that level of commitment for that kind of success that a lot of us want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if it's hard in those days where you're really down, if you have depression or anxiety or these things, because this is what I do, right? On those days that I'm really down, but I'm still trying to drive marketing or promo for my books, or I'm still trying to push forward on my book. It's not about me anymore. It's about the characters that I love. It's about the story I love. It's about the story that I want to share with other people. So when it's the hardest for me to do the thing for me, I can still do it for others, if that makes sense. Right. It's it's kind of I don't want to say it's that per, that people pleaser because I'm not so much a people pleaser, but it is that desire to help that desire to share that encourages me even on those moments that I can't get out of bed. Like I told my wife this right those days that I can't get out of bed, but I have a three year old and I want to spend time with her and I want to do it for her or I want to spend time with my wife and do it for my wife. And that happens. But purpose, purpose, it gives you the exactly purpose. It. Purpose. That's exactly what it is. Purpose and intention. And it comes yeah. back to those things, which I'm pretty sure we mentioned earlier on. So it, it really does circle back. Yeah. Speaking of circling back, my listeners know, hi, we love you. I have a project that I created called Culture Kids at the end of last year. I was going to put in all the film festivals and then an executive. It's a short. We're going to do X amount of episodes and that can be a comedy movie, but it's it's Web3. It's the culture of Web3 before the world knows the culture of the artists of Web3. And before the writer strike, before all of this, um, I made this nine minute short and I was going to go the traditional route and put it into all the film festivals. And then with the writer strike and executive producer, he said, well, and I waited six months. He's like, well, just, you know, save your money, like just release it independently everywhere. And I was like, OK, so I was like going to take this approach and, and do that and not wait anymore. But it's situational improv. And the other half, it's written by AI verbatim. I put prompts. It's written by AI. Mm -hmm. And I love AI. I love writers. I'm a writer. I'm a poet. The a It's half written by AI. And it's amazing. And the other half is situational improv. And it's one of the first comedies to ever going to be released as written by AI in, in situational comedy. But then also as a poet, you know, I studied Shakespeare and I did a lot of like, you know, different poetry, my Angelou and Socrates and Plato and my own spoken word poetry through traveling the world and writing poetry. And they're not just like four sentences. They're like 10 pages. Like I do like long poems. So mm -hmm. sometimes so long. And as an actor and being off book and memorizing and then doing the emotion, it can be a lot, especially with the novels of spoken word poetry I've written. So with the AI and instead of, you know, Shakespeare, which I've done, you study history and then the creating of my own. But to be a young poet and to pivot how I feel and as an actor, I'll put certain things in the prompt and it'll write it for me. And then I read it. I recite it with the emotions and I'm crying and I'm laughing and I'm, I'm taking the pressure off of, you know, my mental wellness of memorizing something. But I'm reciting the poetry through AI that's inspired by something of my life. And it's like a tool and they're beautiful. And the way I can be an actor and express these words written by AI, it's just really, I think, beautiful and prolific. So to lean in, to explore as you do and to lean in and real writing is never going to leave. Like we, we need that. We get to have that human interaction, but it, it can we can utilize the tool in a way where it can support us. For example, your research that you're doing, instead of you spending hours on doing the research, you write it into AI and it brings it up in 
a minute. So, I mean, what are some ways AI is helping you right now? And like, how are you exploring and where are you with AI in your writing? In my writing, it's still not anywhere close to what you're doing, but I do prompt a lot with AI. And the reason I prompt is also to kind of give me the scaffolding of an article if I'm doing a travel work or maybe of understanding, okay, what is really the core essence of what I'm trying to say with this story if I'm using this, this, and this, and this, this, and this? Okay, so if that's really what I'm trying to say, then maybe I should explore it in this way, right? It's less of giving me the words and more of giving me the sentimentality of I'm having trouble expressing myself. If this is what I'm saying, what is the subtext here, right? What am I missing? Help me, help give me this discussion that I'm not able to have with other people at the moment, right? Because one of the, again, one of the issues of being independent, one of the issues of not being in like a writing program in some facet is you lack that community. You don't have those people to coming back to that image of holding up a mirror to you and to your work and saying, this is what I'm seeing here. Is this what your intention is? And that's invaluable for an artist of any kind, for a poet, for a writer, for a painter, for whatever. It's the whole thing is we're trying to communicate something, right? That's art. We're communicating something. And if the person or people who are on the receiving end don't understand what we're trying to communicate, then we're not doing our job. And I say this to people, I say this to students all the time, because I teach creative writing, I've taught creative writing. If it's not coming across on the page, then it's not going to work. You can't sit there and whisper into every reader's ear, this is what I meant. So if you're not doing it there on the page, you have to change it. You have to figure out how to get across what you want to get across in a way that makes the emotional connection you want. And giving AI that chance and that responsibility to kind of mirror back to me. This is what I want to do. Am I doing it? That really, that's helps me a lot. So it goes from, again, that tool that like, okay, outline this article or outline this story for me. And then I'm going to go in and put my creative spin on everything. Or it goes to, okay, this is what I want. This is what I'm trying to say. Am I saying it? Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, We're rounding out here. So any last words of wisdom, advice, or anything that you want the listener to know before we uh, close out? You know, I feel like I said so much that uh, you can use an AI tool that'll give you the nuggets of the messages that I have because there's so many. And that might be more helpful than me trying to round it out right now. But I had a great time and I hope I was informative, helpful, and encouraging to all your listeners. Wonderful. And take that actionable step. Why not? Check it out. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week and check out the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Kiriaki, over and out.